Hello, I'm Danny Aiken, president of Southeastern Seminary. This podcast is a variety of audio resources from around Southeastern. To learn more about Southeastern, visit scbts.edu. Y'all, what a privilege to be here and uh, genuinely be a part of this great school, this August institution. You know, the late Rodney Stark, who was a professor of uh, Christian history and sociology over at Baylor before he died, um, said uh, in, I think it was one of his last books, The Churching of America, that the single greatest predictor of any denomination or any movement, the predictor of its future, was not how big it was, how much money it had, how great its preachers were. The single greatest indicator was the amount of young men and young women that that movement was raising up in ministry, uh, which is why um, we are so delighted and so honored to be a part of this and to tell you that uh, without trying to to put flattery on um, any of the administration here or on you, but you really are at one of the greatest places on earth uh, in one of the greatest times of your life as God shapes you and he prepares you. And so we are very, very privileged to be able to do many of those things and others too that uh, Ryan mentioned a moment ago, which brings me to this. Uh, this is what I walked into on Tuesday afternoon um, at our church. Did I put it up there? Or maybe, maybe not. Um, this uh, I, Basically a room filled uh, a lot with some Southeastern students, others that are in different points of their life that are meeting with uh, their mentors, ministry mentors. Uh, these are this is our apprentice and residency program. Um, it is one of the most important things uh, that I think we do at our church in light of what I uh, told you a second ago. Um, there's a, a group of mentors, people like my dad who is here and other pastors and leaders and elders at the church who just uh, personally take on some of these people that feel called to go to ministry that we can be a part of pouring into them. Um, and so uh, that group actually, that residency and um, an, an apprentice program is called the Summit Institute. They actually have a, a lunch, a free lunch right after this that they asked me if I would tell you about and uh, tell you that you are invited. It's no obligation. You just show up and uh, at least hear about it. Um, there are a lot of great churches around here. We'll be very clear on that. We are not the only church. We're not the best church. Uh, churches like um, uh, Faith that led this morning, um, uh, Imago Day, who apparently Tony Morita was playing the bass for them. Did y'all notice that? Um, but uh, the, uh, then, of course, Providence and, um, and uh, Wake Crossroads and many, many, many others uh, that are, uh, are there. So, but if we can be a part of that development process for you, that would be, we would be delighted to. It's led by a guy named Mike Calhoun, uh, which I got to know. He's, uh, he led one of the, a very large um, ministry called uh, Word of Life Clubs and then told me several years ago that this lad, this chapter of his life, the next chapter, he just wanted to pour into young men and women. And I've always said it's kind of like like uh, Nick Saban, um, or uh, I guess Kirby Smart, uh, telling you that they want to come and coach your middle school um, football team, and you just say, yes, I don't even need to pray about that. I'm pre-prayed up. Uh, so, or Ryan, for you, it's like Taylor Swift approaching you and saying that she wants to, you know, something from your world. Uh, but anyway, the... Mike has been leading that program. Uh, he actually mentored me when I was uh, felt called to ministry uh, back uh, many, many years ago. And so um, it just does a great job. Uh, we know that our greatest legacy is not going to be in how large we grow as a church. Um, it's going to be how many leaders that we raise up. And so if we can be a part of that in your life, um, we genuinely would be honored to. It would be among our most important assignments, which leads me to the second thing really quickly. And that is um, what a privilege you have to have Jesse and Julie and many 
many people of their team. Um, I honestly don't know, as we, somebody that we work very closely with at the Summit Church, I don't know of anybody um, that I trust more with innovation uh, matched with faithfulness in seeing the Great Commission go forward, sort of a modern-day um, Apostle Paul and apostolic small A team that is out there. Uh, the question of have you been called to missions is really, have you had the conversation with Jesse yet? So uh, make your way up to him or one of his team and uh, spend some time with them. And at least, even if God's called you here, hear about what God is doing around the world and how you can be a part of, of, of what he is doing. All right, Matthew chapter 4, if you got your Bibles, Matthew chapter 4. I want to talk about something fundamental this morning as you begin this year, and that is how you see yourself. How you see yourself, what psychologists would call your identity. I believe that this might be one of the most important themes that we can talk about in our preaching and teaching right now. You may or may not know this, but the stats on your generation are very discouraging. The rates of anxiety and depression, suicidal thoughts, eating disorders, to say they are skyrocketing would be an understatement. In fact, listen to this, 91% of your generation reports significant psychological symptoms due to stress and anxiety. The Wall Street Journal, in fact, had an um, article last week about just the in unbelievable growth of medication in these areas. Less than one half of your generation, 45%, described their mental health as very good. During your lifetime, the percentage of young adult females who say that they are persistently sad and hopeless has gone from 10% when you were a toddler to over 57% today. Suicide rates of young adults have increased by 30% in the last decade. Since 1950, they have quadrupled. And don't think that because you're raised in a Christian home or even went to a Christian school that you're exempt from that. They say that young ladies who graduate from a private school are four times more likely to suffer from anxiety and depression than those that went to a public school. Now, there are a lot of factors behind that, but it is in part because your generation suffers from a massive identity crisis, and that is in part because you've had to deal with forces that no other generation before yours has ever had to deal with. The ubiquity of things like Instagram and Snapchat and TikTok and Be Real reminds you 24-7 of everything you're missing out on, and of course, forcing you to compare your life to the filtered, sculptured version that everybody else's uh, life that they put up on social media, you're comparing your real life to everybody else's highlight reel. I take my wife out for a nice meal on her birthday and I buy her an expensive pair of shoes and I'm feeling pretty good about myself as a husband until she points out that one of my friends posted on Instagram that he you know, bought his wife a pony and took her backpacking across Europe and suddenly I don't feel so awesome as a husband anymore. Comparing ourselves among ourselves has always been a problem, but it's in your face 24 hours a day and seven days a week. Uh, the Outreach Magazine list of 100 fastest growing, 100 largest churches just came out, and that's porn for pastors that they just put right there in front of you to say, where are you and how you compare to everybody else um, that you graduated with? The, all the question of identity is one of the most important questions for your generation. What makes you you. What makes you, what gives you worth? What gives you value? Who are you? It's a major theme in popular culture. Listen to Ryan's favorite, Taylor Swift, and you'll hear the question of identity laced all through her songs. You know, interestingly, J.K. Rowling made this a major theme in the Harry Potter series. 
which is one of the reasons critics say that it was so popular. Harry doesn't know who he is. And because of that, his life lacks meaning. And so the first couple of books are about Harry figuring out who he is when Hagrid comes to find him. He's basically living as an abandoned orphan, insecure under a staircase. Just unsure why these strange, magical people would be looking for him when Hagrid says to him, oh, you don't know, do you? You don't know. You're famous. You're special. You're the one who lived. I listened to an interview with J.K. Rowling who said that she did this intentionally because so many kids in this generation identify with that feeling of angst that Harry was growing up with. So it's a very relevant thing for you when you are preaching. It's also a very relevant thing for you personally because as I want to show you or try to show you today, when Satan attacks you, when Satan attacks you, even as a seminary student, this is the place that he usually begins. Matthew 4, the question of identity is the question quietly at work in the great temptation that is recorded in Matthew 4. Now, I want to acknowledge there are lots of very, very important things that are happening in the temptation that we are not going to talk about today. I'm only going to focus on this one pretty narrow, often overlooked dimension. So when you all are processing this sermon later in your preaching class, I freely acknowledge that I'm leaving a lot on the table in this. I just want to focus on one little slice of this story. The story of the temptation actually starts not in chapter 4, even though that's where the heading in your Bible is. It actually starts back in chapter 3. So let's begin there. Matthew 3, verse 13. Then Jesus came from Galilee to the Jordan River to John to be baptized by him. John would have prevented him, saying, I need to be baptized by you. I know who you are. Why would you come to me, especially because, we will learn, John's baptism is a baptism of repentance. Jesus clearly didn't need to repent, so why would he need to be baptized? That's why John is objecting. But Jesus answered him, let it be so now, for thus it is fitting for us to fulfill all righteousness, which is a very interesting phrase we will come back to. Then John consented, and when Jesus was baptized, immediately he went up from the water, and behold, the heavens were open to him, and he saw the Spirit of God descending like a dove and coming to rest on him. And behold, a voice from heaven said, this is my beloved Son, with whom I am well, please, there is the Father declaring Jesus's identity. You are my beloved Son, in whom I am well pleased. Now, watch this, chapter 4, verse 1. Then Jesus was led up by the Spirit into the wilderness to be tempted by the devil. Jump to verse 3. And the tempter came and said to him, first words out of his mouth, if you are the Son of God, well, then you should command these stones to become loaves of bread. Excuse me. If you are the Son of God, isn't that what the Father had just said about Jesus? You are my beloved Son. You see how that connects? Satan is injecting doubt or attempting to inject doubt into how Jesus sees himself, tempting him to do something to prove that he is what God has already declared him to be. If you actually are who God says you are, Jesus, then you should prove it by doing this. It's not altogether different from what Satan said in Genesis 3 when he said to Adam and Eve, did God really say this? Satan is always scheming. It's where he begins to get us to doubt what God has said to us and about us. The same thing is at work in the second temptation, verse 5, then the devil took him to the holy city and set him on the pinnacle of the temple and said to him again, if you're the son of God, throw yourself down for it is written, he will command his angels concerning you lest you dash your foot 
against a stone. In this one, Satan even twists Scripture in his attack on Jesus' identity. We'll return to that too. But again, Jesus, you got to do something. You got to be something to live up to, to warrant this title, Son of God. Do this, and you'll be what God has already said that you are. And the third temptation, Satan does not repeat the phrase, if you are the Son of God. But when you think about it, this one's all about identity too, right? Jesus, Satan takes Jesus high up on this overlook and says, see all these nations out there, I'll give you all of this if you'll worship me. He's basically offering to Jesus something God had already promised to give him. Satan is saying, I can give you the honor and the recognition of being king. I can give that to you right now. Yeah, God has promised you that. I understand that. But where is the evidence for it? I can give it to you now. Brothers and sisters, it is extremely significant that the one place that we see Jesus and Satan do battle directly, where we actually hear the words of Satan, his focus is on identity. It's actually kind of strange when you think about it. If I were to say to most people, imagine that the Son of God and the representation of all evil, the arch enemy, are going to do battle, what would that battle look like? People in your generation, even my generation, are going to think, they're going to think Marvel battle. They're thinking a couple guys out in the desert hurling rocks at each other, you know, slamming them, things blowing apart, all kinds of CGI happening. But it's not. Just a couple of guys out in the middle of the wilderness having a conversation. And that's because the battleground of Satan is the mind and the focus of his attack is identity. In fact, write this down. Satan wants you to forget who God has declared you to be and build your identity on what you can do or what others say about you. I want you to note that this came before any other temptation. Satan wasn't out in the wilderness showing Jesus pictures of naked women or offering him drugs. Those kinds of temptations always come secondary. Satan starts by making Jesus question who he is and how God feels about him. Well, it stands to reason that if that's what he's doing with Jesus, it's what he's doing with you also. And Satan has three traps that he uses to do this. A couple of them you can see here in this account. One of them will need to kind of go a little bit farther for it. But the first trap is the trap of comparison. He wants you to measure your worth by how you measure up to others. Am I as smart as he is? Are you as pretty as she is? What kind of preaching invitations is he getting? What kind of recognition is she getting? How big is the church that you serve at? How successful is the ministry that I'm part of? You know, my second year of seminary, sitting right where you sit, on much more uncomfortable pews than what you're sitting on, I was genuinely discouraged because it seemed like all my friends were getting big jobs. One of my good friends just been hired at a mega church to oversee this huge student ministry. I can't remember what Ryan was doing. He's already running the seminary, I'm pretty sure. A couple of my friends had well, booked out for over a year preaching at student ministries. Meanwhile, I was working two jobs. One was food service and the other was construction. I was trying to break into the speaking circuit. I even made up little business cards that had, you know, I just give it to people if I found out they're Christian. I'm like, hey, let me come speak at your youth group. You know, I even had a version of it made up that said motivational speakers so that I could show up at your rotary club. I even applied at a couple of churches around here and got turned down for, for, for jobs there. And so I just was very discouraged because I wasn't, I wasn't comparing well to friends and others I was going to seminary with. Comparison is dumb for a couple of reasons. 
One's very practical. You understand this. God's got everybody on different, time, uh, different development timetables. I always tell middle and high school students that some of them are like poplar trees. Poplar tree, if you know anything about gardening, that it will plant literally the moment that you put it in the ground. By the time you get back to the kitchen, it's already like six inches tall. It's like a weed. Others of them are like the bamboo tree, which shows absolutely no growth for five years. And then in the fifth year, will grow more than 90 feet. For you as a seminary student, there are some of you, like Billy Graham, we're going to start huge. There are others who, like Tim Keller, nobody hears of until they're in their late 50s, and that's when they make their biggest impact. Not that the point that the measure is becoming well-known, the point is that you just don't know. Stop comparing yourselves. God used Gideon immediately. Moses, he sent into the wilderness for 40 years. David, he sent back into the pasture for at least seven years. Paul, he sent into the desert for about 17 years. So don't compare yourselves. Second reason comparison is dumb is that you're specifically designed for whatever purpose God has for you. Psalm 139 says that you are fearfully and wonderfully made. Just the language of the respect that God is using there. I wouldn't think of God doing anything fearfully. And what it means is he is just making you with precision for exactly the purpose he has for you. All of you are sitting in this room because some version of Acts 26, 16 happened to you. Where Jesus appeared to you and said, rise up, stand on your feet because I've appeared to you for a reason. You didn't decide you want to do this. I called you. I'm going to make you a minister and a witness of the things that you have seen and the things that I'm still going to show you into the future. In Jesus' parable of the talents, the servant who invested and multiplied his two talents got the same commendation as the one with five talents, even though he yielded less than 50% of the output. The measure of your life is how faithful you were to the assignment God gave you. I promise in that final moment, hearing well done, good and faithful servants is going to matter far more than the size of your ministry and how it compared to somebody else's. Satan's second trap is the trap of competition. That's the kind of person that only feels good about themselves when they win. You're the kind of person who always has to win, always has to be first in order for you to feel good about yourself. Now, let me be clear so we don't over-spiritualize this. Competition can be good. It can bring out the best in you. But when competition becomes a means to create or maintain a self-image, then it becomes deadly and it brings out the worst in you. Are you the kind of person who cannot stand to lose at anything? In fact, one of my favorite movies, it's an old movie, it's called Chariots of Fire. How many of you have seen that? It's like a 1970s one. Surprising. It's actually amazing. She got two guys in there who are sprinters, both headed to the Olympics. One of them is a Christian, and he runs to the glory of God. And what characterizes his running is freedom and joy. In fact, it's got that, you know, the goofy posture that he has when he runs with his head back, because he just, he runs from an overflow of joy. And if he has to stop running, he doesn't care. He's just doing it because it's a way of glorifying God. The other guy, Harold Abrams, runs because he's trying to prove himself. In fact, in one of the, the kind of the, the, the crisis moments of the movie, he says, I've got 15 seconds to prove my worth and my value. For many of us, every competition we enter is, I've got 15 seconds. I've got whatever time it is to prove my worth. It's almost like, think of yourself as a swimmer who's about to swim. And as you stand on that platform, waiting on that gun to go off, you're going down the lane of that pool. And at the other end, there's a banner at the finish line that says acceptance. And I got to get there and I got to beat everybody else there because unless I'm first, unless I get there, then I will not be accepted. And that's why competition brings out the worst in you. 
makes you insecure and hateful and jealous and most of all, exhausted. Satan's third trap is the trap of condemnation. Satan loves to use your personal failures and shortcomings to tear you down. Well, look at what you've messed up. You'll never amount to anything. After what you've done, you'll never be able to preach. If you were a failure at everything else in your life, how do you possibly think you'll be successful in this? With a person with sinful weaknesses like yours, you're never going to make an effective pastor or leader. A lot of people don't know this. I know you probably do, but Satan loves to make you feel bad about your sin. Most people assume that when they feel bad about their sin, it has to be the Holy Spirit. But what's Satan's name in the Bible? The accuser of the brethren, which means that when your sin is up in front of your heart, quite often it can be the accuser of the brethren. He's there to remind you how you don't measure up. He's always trying to say, prove yourself, because God won't love you and other people won't either until you prove you're worthy of love. And like, here's how to tell the difference between when Satan convicts you and when it's the Holy Spirit. Satan starts with what you did and tears down who you are. The Holy Spirit starts with who you are in Christ, or at least who he's creating you to be, and he calls you to rise above what you did. Satan used your failures to attack your identity. He starts with what you did and tears down who you are. The Holy Spirit starts with your identity, what God has declared you to be, what he's recreated you to be, and calls you to rise above and then repair what you did. Satan drives you away from the words of Jesus. The Holy Spirit's always going to drive you to them. In fact, I saw this unfortunately played out in the lives of two of my daughters um, several years ago when they were six and four, my two oldest daughters. Uh, my oldest daughter, Karis, has always had a problem with timidity. She's actually very competent at lots of things, but she just doesn't like to try new stuff. And I was concerned as a dad, especially your first kid, because you always ruin your first kid because you're way too obsessed about him. And uh, so, my firstborn's in here. Yeah, you were ruined. And so, my, um, my uh, you know, I was always like pushing her. Like, I'm like, why don't you want to ride the roller coaster? I mean, you're old enough. You should do this. I don't want to ride it that, but you, you should, because where are you going to go in life if you don't learn to do hard things? Uh, we have lots of little talks like this. It was super helpful for her. And um, so we were, uh, she was, the two of them were in the back of the car, strapped in the car seat, and we we're on our way somewhere, and we were going to do something. And I said, so I just slipped in there like, oh, there's a really cool roller coaster ride. And I see her face kind of blanch and like, and she looks down and she's, Daddy, I don't want to ride. I don't want to ride. I'm scared, Daddy. I'm scared. And I said, you got to stop being scared, Karis, because if you don't overcome that fear, you're never going to do anything in life. She said, I know, Daddy. She was sometimes I think I'm just a big scaredy cat. And I said, yes, you are a big scaredy cat, and you're going to have to choose to overcome that. All of a sudden, I look up in the, uh, the, the rearview mirror, and I see my four-year-old daughter, Allie, who is sitting beside, and she is looking at Karis with this face, and she goes, oh, no, Karis. You are not a scaredy cat. You are my big sister. And you can do anything that you put your mind to. And I thought, great. She's the Holy Spirit, and I am the voice of Satan. Uh, is how this has all worked out. <laughs> Satan wants you to build your identity on how you compare to others, how talented you are, how well you've lived anything, except what God has declared over you in the gospel. By contrast, God gives identity as a gift. God declares Jesus' identity over him before the temptation, before he'd passed all these tests, God already says it. And that declaration was the strength by which Jesus overcame Satan's temptation. 
It's because he knew God was his father. He knew God was pleased with him, that he didn't have to prove himself to overcome Satan. The same thing is true for you. Knowing your identity is what gives you the power to overcome. In fact, let's go back to our little swimming platform. Except only now I want you to take that banner of acceptance and don't put it at the finish line. Put it on the platform on which you're standing. Acceptance is not what's waiting for you at the end. It's the platform that you jump off of. Awareness of God's acceptance, awareness of your identity is what gives you the ability to live the Christian life. Maybe one of the best examples of this is that story in John 8 where the woman is caught in the very act of adultery. You know the story that she's brought there, caught in the very act. Everybody wants to stone her. Jesus looks at them, well, drops down, starts to draw in the dirt says, let he who is without among you cast the first stone. They all stare at each other awkwardly, drop their rocks, and go home. And now it's just Jesus and the woman. And he looks at her and says, woman, where are your accusers? And she said, Lord, there are none. And he said, neither. What always fascinates me about what he says is the order in which he says it. Neither do I condemn you. Go and sin no more. What fascinates me is that instinctively I would almost always reverse this. If you go and sin no more, you got a second chance then God won't condemn you. But Jesus put acceptance before change because he knew she'd never had the power to change until she had felt the warmth and the strength of acceptance. We don't know what this woman's past was like, and I'm not presuming to know this, but I know for a lot of people, what they seek in sexual intimacy is something they can really only find in God. And maybe this woman was driven because of a bad relationship with her father and because of abuse that she suffered when she was a teenager, or maybe she was treated like an object by her first husband. We don't know. But whatever it is, she's now looking for something in the arms of adultery that only God can give her. And God knows, Jesus knows, she will never break that cycle until she has felt something stronger in Jesus than any man could ever offer to her. In fact, write this down if you're taking notes. God's acceptance is the power that liberates you from sin. It is not the reward for you having liberated yourself. In fact, I'll tell you, some of my own, many of my own sins, so many of them have come from the root of not really believing what God has declared over me in the gospel. A while back, I was trying to explain to our church that a lot of our sins come from a common root like this. And so I asked my wife one night, we were lying in bed. I said, hey, just as an illustration of the church, help me come up with the sins that I struggle with most. And let's just see if we have a common root. So I applied a little pad to write stuff down. For the record, that was a huge mistake. I was like, next time I do this, I'm doing this all by myself. She started rattling them off like some memorized list that she had been cultivating for years. First one I remember she identified was anger. I'm not like a, you know, rage, lose my temper guy, but she said, you get angry and you get angry for two reasons. It's always a pattern, two things. Number one, somebody disrespects you. Or number two, you lose an argument. When I lose an argument, y'all, I fume. I spend the rest of the day going back over that argument to figure out how I could have won it. You like that? Right? I, right? I rerun the argument. I've lost lots of arguments. I've never once lost a rerun. I'm always like, oh, yeah, oh, yeah, I would say this, boom, then, then victory is mine. Why is it that those two things make me mad? Well, for both of them, I'm losing face. I'm seen as not that smart or respectable. And see, here's the deal with me. Your approval, your admiration of me is a kind of validation for me. It's what I live for. God's is not enough. I need yours. And if one of those things doesn't happen, I'm going to lose it. So it, it affects me in my core when one of those things happens. Second one we, she identified was lying. 
I don't like tell huge lies, but I always tell little white lies in two situations. One, I tend to exaggerate my accomplishment and minimize my weaknesses. Second reason I lie is if I don't want to disappoint somebody, because I'm a real people pleaser. So if you ask me to do something and I can't do it, I will make up something. Oh, I can't do that. I've got an appointment that I'm making right now in my head that I will tell my assistant about later, and that's why I can't do that. Because I don't want to, dis- I, I want you to admire me and like me because I need your affirmation and approval. That is my identity. Worry is a persistent sin that she identified. I've always worried about failure, quite honestly. I know this sounds dumb now, but for several years, like five, six years into pastoring the church I pastor now, I, it, it sounds totally irrational to verbalize it, but driving up to the church on the weekend, on Sunday morning, I would think, okay, this is the weekend that everybody goes to a different church. This is a volunteer organization. Literally, it's going to be nobody. I'm going to drive up empty parking lot all day long. It's just me and my family, and my kids are on their device watching Mr. Beast, and Veronica's got her AirPods in listening to Matt Chandler because he's funnier than me anyway. And so that's what it's going to be. And why am I so worried about failure? Why does that haunt me at different times? It's because I need to be successful. Because only with success will you admire and vaunt me, and that is my identity. Overwork was one she pointed out. Why, why would I overwork? I overwork because I want to be successful. It makes me make bad decisions. Jealousy. I do not understand how somebody called to the ministry who really does care about the gospel going around the end of the world. When I hear about a friend of mine that's doing better than me, why is my first impulse, I hate that? Why wouldn't that happen to me? Why would it create feelings in me that just don't make sense? It's because that person is now threatening for the attention that I really crave because your attention is my validation. Y'all see a pattern? You're like, bro, you were one sick dude. Are you sure you should be a pastor? You're the same way. I just got the courage to stand up here and be honest. Of course, maybe the reason I'm doing that is so you will admire me for my transparency. And it keeps spiraling all the way down. The point is I'm trying to become something in your eyes that God has already made me in Christ. I crave your affirmation because I am neither confident nor satisfied in his. Proverbs 29, 25 says, the fear of man is a snare, but whoever trusts in the Lord is saved. All those things I mentioned, they're snares, jealousy, anxiety, fear. So are things like eating disorders and depression and medicating through pornography, suicidal thoughts and cutting, they all come from fear of man. The only thing that frees me from that snare is the assurance of how the Father feels about me. The assurance that he says to me before I've ever jumped off that platform, before I've ever gone and accomplished anything, that he says to me, you are my beloved son and whom I'm well pleased. And you say, well, J.D., that's the problem. How would God ever feel that way about me? I get it, it's how he felt about Jesus. He was the son of God, but there's no way he looks at me and says, you are my beloved son or daughter and you I'm well pleased. I mean... Look at my life, look how little I've accomplished, look how much I've messed up. That's a great question. Y'all remember what was happening in Matthew 3 when Jesus first heard that declaration? He was getting baptized. And I pointed out it was John's baptism, a baptism of repentance. People were being baptized as a show of repentance from their sins. And so you have to ask the question, why would Jesus need to be baptized? He has nothing to repent of. Jesus' answer was to fulfill all righteousness. Well, that raises its own question, doesn't it? Whose righteousness? He's already fully righteous, so there's nothing to fulfill on his part. 
No, he was being baptized to fulfill my righteousness and yours. He was being baptized a baptism of repentance because he was beginning the process of substitution. He repented in my place. I couldn't even do that right. So he repented in my place. It was almost like, imagine him walking through that crowd. Imagine everybody's wearing a name tag. His says Jesus, he doesn't need to repent of anything, so he grabs the one that says JD and slaps it on his chest. And he grabbed your name tag and he walked into that water and he got baptized repenting, not for his sins, but repenting for mine and for yours. The gospel is that God made him who knew no sin to become sin in our place. He took my sin and went through a baptism of repentance and then died under judgment in my place. And we got his position of favor. And that means everything that Jesus heard is actually what comes to me and to you. So yes, I have heard, well done. I have heard you are my beloved son in whom I am well pleased. When God sees me, he sees the perfect life of Jesus. I have this position, I have his power at work inside of me. So the question, what's your identity? If you're a believer, you can say, well, I'm not the summation of my talents. I'm not the size of my church. I'm not how many people know my name. I'm not the size of my Twitter following. I'm not my potential. I'm not how I compare to others. I'm not how much people love and approve of me. I am certainly not my mistakes. I am who he says I am. I am a son or daughter of the king in whom the father is well pleased. I am loved, loved so much that the son of God came for me. And now sees me only through the eyes of grace, who literally could not love me any more than he does right now. I am complete in Christ. And that means I've got a purpose. That he's appeared to me for a reason, to make me a minister and a witness of the things that I've seen and the things he's going to show me. I'm forgiven, restored, redeemed, made alive, a new creation, a co-heir with Christ. Seated in the heavenly places, filled with his power, commissioned by his spirit appointed now to walk in blessing and to be a blessing to others in whom all the promises of God for me are yes in Christ Jesus, an unqualified yes, and in whom there is no shadow of turning at all for me, that he is constant good for me all the time in all places and all situations. And if I got his approval, and if I have his favor, and his power works inside of me, then who cares what anybody else says? If he right now is saying to me, my beloved son, in whom I'm well pleased, then who cares what a bunch of no-account earthlings think of me? No offense. One of the many jobs I had in seminary was I coached a little soccer team not far from here. It was a middle school team. And uh, it's one of the greatest experiences of my life and also one of the weirdest. Um, It was, uh, so the first year that I coached, we made it all the way to the semifinals. There's little, you know, these little club teams and tournament. And I, you know, so I, this is my first year coaching, and I thought, you know, the Kirby Smart of coaching has now arrived. And so I, uh, you know, we, our, my guys, they, they were a special group of guys, and um, they, the problem they had was aggressiveness. And so I used to make them, before the game would start, I'd make them all spit on the ground, rub uh, dirt, and make mud, and then cover themselves, like literally oh, their faces, would streak themselves with mud, and then put their shirts back on because I'm like, I need you guys to be aggressive. So we won, undefeated the entire season. Uh, Going to the last game, uh, or the last game that we played, was the um, semifinals. And uh, we never played at a stadium under lights. This was a big deal for us. First night, first time we go out there. Um, 
ritual commenced. Off come the shirts, like right in front of the other team. I look back now, I'm like, this is really not healthy. Uh, they, they, they take off their shirts. They're spitting on the ground. They're wiping dirt on their faces. They're yelling. They're beating their chest. They put their jerseys back on. They took the field, and we got killed. Um, this team we never played before, and um, the score didn't reflect it because we only lost three to one. Um, but it was just one of those teams where, like, they always had control. And the problem, the main problem, was that they had this one player on their team. This is a very important detail. And she was awesome. She. And my little chauvinist had never played a girl. And she was like Michael Jordan with a soccer ball. I mean, literally, whatever she wanted to do, she could do. And uh, so she'd scored the first two goals. And she comes, and, uh, and I was like, it was like 15 minutes left to go in the second half. And so I pulled out our best fullback. His name was Trip, ironically. And I said, Trip. I was like, that girl cannot take any more shots on goal. I know, coach. I, I, said, I said, you got one assignment for the rest of the game. You understand me? He said, yes. I said, I'm going to put you back in this game. She is your assignment. I don't care what else happens on the field. That's not your responsibility. She is your responsibility. You understand me? He said, yes, sir, coach. I, Trip, I don't care if the guy next to you bursts into flames. That is not your responsibility. You understand? Yes, sir, coach. I said, you go back in, and if she steps foot in the penalty box with that ball, your one assignment is, I need you to take her out. She, he said, oh, yes, sir, coach. She, I said, no more shots on goal. He said, yes, sir. He turns around, runs back on the field. And he gets about 10 feet from me. I was like, Trip, do it legally. Because we'd worked on this. That's a, you know, slide tackle. So yes, all. Oh, he, says, he says, okay. So we turn around. Three or four minutes go by. I've honestly forgotten what I said to him because she comes down the, the right side of the field. She goes through our left fullback like he's, I don't know what happened, but he's in the fetal position crying for his mom. And then she comes in and she does some kind of like the, 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 the stopper was the last one. And she did some kind of juke move on him. And then it's just her and the goalie. And she, I mean, she pump faked and the goalie just, just jumps out of the picture with her pump. And it's just her and a wide open goal. And I'm like, that's it in the game. All of a sudden, out of the left side of my peripheral vision comes this, we were team more orange, orange blur, just, and just, I mean, it was like he had a tractor beam locked on her, just, and, just, and I was like, just kind of, it's it, it sort of like slow motion. And he, she, you know, isn't pulled back in beautiful soccer position. He hits her from behind. I mean, just full spread eagle position, just, <laughs> just, I mean, completely from behind, just, it was like a mushroom cloud. And there's like, you know, blood, hair, cleats everywhere. Um, not no blood, but it was, it was, it was, it was ugly. And it was one of those moments where it was like the whole field just went quiet. Like there's no way that just happened. <laughs> and then it was like at once everybody kind of snapped back into life and everybody was mad, but for different reasons, their team was mad because they thought we tried to take out their star player. The referee's mad. Cause he's like, I mean, red card for sure. But does this kid need to be arrested? Um, <laughs> Our team is mad because they know they just handed this team a you know, penalty kick in the penalty box, which they're definitely going to score on. Our parents are mad because they think psycho coach has sent in this kid to take this little girl out. Um, I'm mad because I'm like, what in the world? So at this point, I'm feeling all these eyes on me. And the only one who's not mad or disturbed at all is Trip. He stands up like oblivious to everything that's happening. He stands up, dusts himself off, reaches down like a perfect little gentleman to help this girl up, just helps her up, makes sure she's okay. Then he turns around 180 degrees. I kid you not, and goes like this. He turns around 180 degrees, he goes like this at me. <laughs> and I was like, now at this point, I'm really feeling like lawsuit. You know, this is about what to happen. So I'm like, Trip! You know, referees were looking for his cards. I'm like, get out! You know, I pull him out of the game. He comes running over, just innocent, you know, looking up. 
gets about 10 feet from me because I know this is a performance for all the parents. And I said, Trip, what is wrong with you, son? I said, Trip, where's your brain? Point to your brain. He, his perfect little innocent 12-year-old face, he kind of points, you know, at his, at his head. And I said, Trip, what are you thinking? And then he got this indignant look on his face and he said, Coach, you told me to take her out illegally. Illegally. He thought the last instruction that I'd given to him before he ran onto the field was, hey, make it nasty. Now, here's the thing. He was a good enough player. In fact, I'm sure he went on to play somewhere else. But he was a good enough player that he knew what he was doing was going to get him in big trouble. He knew he'd probably get a red card. He knew he'd probably get thrown out of the game. He knew they get a penalty kick. He knew he might get jumped after the end of the game by the other team. He knew all that. But the thing that's always stuck with me about Trip and that moment is he didn't care about any of that stuff. He cared about the one person that he turned around and looked at after the deed was done. Right? Because in his little warped 12-year-old brain, if coach is happy with me, then everything is going to be fine. If coach is approving of me, that's the only person in my universe that matters. Now, why would I tell you that story? It's because you should look at the Father the way that Tripp looked at me. Because it really is, if God is for you, then who cares what anybody else thinks? He loves you. He stands behind you. He's promised to use you for good. First Peter says that when Jesus was reviled, when he was threatened, he didn't do those things back, but he committed himself to the one who judges justly. And Jesus had a whole lifetime of saying, I don't need your validation because I am who my Father says I am, and that makes me free, and I can run with joy. Your identity is what the most important person in your life thinks about you. That person for Jesus and for you must always be the Father. I am who the Father says I am. Why don't you bow your heads, if you would. Our worship team's on their way back up here. Father says to you, with head bowed and eye closed, he says to you right now, if you are in Christ, you are my beloved son or daughter in whom I'm well pleased. Neither do I condemn you. Some of you have things that you wonder if people found them out about your past, would you be called for ministry? He says, neither do I condemn you. Go and sin no more. You may have some restitution to make. You may have some confessions. You may have to come clean, but neither do I condemn you. Go and sin no more. Can you embrace that? I know it's gospel 101, but I am who the Father says I am, and I am everything that he says I am. Gospel 101, but like Martin Luther says, to progress in the Christian life is always to begin again, to come back to your identity. Father, we give you praise. We give you help. We ask for help, and we ask you, Lord, that you make our identity so large that it crowds out all the other voices. We pray in Jesus' name. Amen. Thank you for listening to this podcast. Consider giving to Southeastern Seminary online or visiting us for a preview day. For information on how to give or sign up for a preview day, visit scbts.edu.